Well, good morning. Like we heard a few weeks ago, it happened. I went to the eye doctor, and that very gracious man, after doing all those wonderful tests, said, guess what? The good news is you're just getting older. I said, what's the good news? He said, well, you can either get reading glasses, which I have, or, I like this option better, you can get the super giant print Bible that you can see from space. So here we are. So as you turn in your Bibles, and I turn 18,000 pages in mine, to Hebrews chapter 11, let us look to God's Word for what He has to say. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 to 12, where we read this. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that was that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, you are so gracious to us that you have given us your word. And so I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would open our eyes of faith so that we can see, behold, obey, and live into your wondrous promises for your great glory and our good. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And now, of course, I won't use my own personal life as a missed opportunity. So let me, if I can, illustrate this for a little bit. A couple weeks ago, Stephen mentioned that he has glasses. And through those glasses, we actually see by faith the spiritual realities that otherwise we wouldn't miss if we solely relied on what we can smell and touch and taste and hear and, of course, see with these eyes. And another way that God uses our faith is to actually enlarge in his truths. I mean, they're big on this page, right? <laughs> to enlarge in the truths of his words so that they're bigger, they're more clearly revealed to us so that we can actually see and behold and then respond. Okay, that's the, maybe the simple version. What we've seen in this passage of Hebrews so far, starting in verse 1 to 3, that that this is the definition, if you will, of what faith is. It's the assurance or the, the substance, the, the true reality, the foundation of things that usually we couldn't see. Oftentimes in our culture today, this, this can be interpreted in kind of two different directions. I want to mention those because I think there's a better way. Usually they're considered as, as just an objective truth. It just kind of hangs out there. There is this, this content of faith 
that is there and you just kind of kind of have to understand it. You've got to figure it out and stick it in your brain. Or the other view is that it's, it's so subjective you have to experience it. You've got to live it. And until you do, well, good luck for you. Have a nice day. Augustine viewed this as the, the spiritual sense of sight, almost that enables us to, to see in a different way. Even and especially, like Stephen mentioned a couple weeks ago, that helps us to see the reality, like see through the fog of sin and corruption. And then from there, throughout history, many reformers have built on that to say, yes, it, it helps us see, and it is the objective, and it is the subjective, but it's all of those are components. Because that's the way that Scripture includes a lot of different descriptions of different aspects of what faith truly is. In other words... There is information, there is content that is objectively true in God's words that I need to see by faith and understand. There is also aspects of faith that I need to experience. There might be only a way in which I can obey if I'm doing so by faith because the reality or the culture or the way it's normally done in a given context is, is absurd, it's bonkers, unless I see by faith yeah, that's really the right way that God would have me do it. It's the mind. It's also what we believe and what our heart ascends to in that sense of, I, I will this to happen. I will that by faith. There's no other maybe logical explanation except I believe by faith. So it's to know what's true. It's believe what's right. And then as we'll see here, that Abraham does, it's to trust and obey what God commands. My goal this morning is to help to unpack that, kind of in reverse order, but to see really it's the three aspects of all of faith, but emphasizing from one degree, first the obedience, that faith is obedience, then faith is the life. Yes, it's often subjective, but that doesn't discount or ignore that it's based on the objective truths of God revealed fully and finally in his word, and then it's all got to be based on him who has revealed it. So the faith to obey, the faith to live, and the faith in him, in God, who has promised. When we see that, firm, that faith is a firm foundation of what is hoped for, when we see this in the life of Abraham, I think oftentimes we're, we're tempted to look at these uh, episodes maybe, and, and this goes for a lot of the characters in this section of Hebrews. We're, we're tempted to look at them and say, well, you know, they were just superhero faithful Christians or believers, or they were, they were you know, some better version of people. Rather than to say, no, this is Scripture identifying one of those aspects and giving us a big story, yes, zooming into some specific moments, but giving us the big story that is characteristic of their entire lives of faith. In other words, like I think Daniel helpfully pointed out last week, oftentimes we can read this section of these faithful believers as what to do or not to do, as like the flannel graph version of morality tales. Here's what he did, so I better do that well. Here's what he did horribly, so don't do that. Rather than seeing this is God's way of showing, 
Here's the big picture of what faith looks like. Believe in him. Trust. Know what his will is. Search the scriptures for what is true. And then do that hard work of applying that in our daily lives so that we can understand by faith that it's knowing and trusting and living out what we believe in. So right off the bat, in verse 8, we see that by faith is going to be that repeated phrase. Every single paragraph is going to start us there. And that's not just using faith as kind of this, the wouldn't that be nice idea. Gee, let's hope that that's true. But as a characteristic, as the evidence of what was going on in the inside of Abraham that is showing the external reality is true. So by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go. Where do we see this in Scripture, and how is this really sweet and condensed version of this in Hebrews chapter 11 actually helping us? If you can flip way back to Genesis 12. Okay, all the way back there. This is really important, and there's a lot of details that we see in this kind of synopsis that Moses gives us here in Genesis. And it really starts back in 11. Right at the end of chapter 11, the descendants of Terah. If we follow through the track of Genesis, we see Noah in the flood. He had the son Shem, and Shem is going to have these descendants. And it gives us all of these dates. What is really helpful, maybe take some time later this afternoon to go back through some of those Don't let the repetition bore you, but notice some of the really important details. For example, they're constantly repeating how old each father is when they had the next offspring. Sometimes that's, you know, okay, interesting biological statistics. Way to go. There there are some people there. But when we see that contrasted with Abraham, in other words, six generations prior to Abraham, the father was in their 30s when they had the son. Abraham is now in his 70s when he's called to go. He's sonless. We're going to see that this is emphasized in the fact that his name literally means father of many. So the father of many, Abram, is called to go from the the hometown with his family around him where he could have some uh, security and stability and His identity was there. He's called to go simply from God's word. God says in in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, go from your country and your kindred, leave your family and your father's house to the land that I will show you. If you all have ever just taken up and gone on a trip, it's not only a little bit different thing in today's age with GPS and really detailed maps and all those kind of things, it's also that Abraham is literally leaving everything behind, probably knowing he'll never come back. He'll never see his family again. But this is emphasized when we look a little bit farther ahead, when Joshua is recapping the story of the people of God throughout generations to the Israelites upon their entrance into this very promised land, when they're finally going to receive it as the promise of, of inheritance, Joshua's recapping this in Joshua chapter 24, 
verse 2 and 3. And he says this. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. Catch some of those details that Joshua is not emphasizing what Hebrews is emphasizing, but he's pointing out some really important distinctions that we need to see contrasted there. God, the one true God, is calling out Abraham from not just the comfort of home, but his idolatry. He's saying you you have eyes that are spiritual eyes, but they're blinded by idols. So leave those, turn, literally the definition of repentance, turn from one sin, turn to the truth of God, and follow me, and I'm not telling you where. Just go to a land. What does it take in Abraham to hear that from God, to know that objective truth, and then to go and do something? It takes him actually trusting that he's not just crazy and hearing some voices, but this is actually truth that he needs to trust and obey. And so he goes. This is incredible. God's call to obey starts with first Abraham knowing that this is actually God. This is the one true God. And then this first of, I think, many tests that culminate later on in Genesis 22 with what God calls the test to sacrifice his one and only son, the son whom you loved, Isaac. That's clearly described as a test, but leaving your homeland, leaving your father, leaving the maybe comfort and security of false idols, he's called to obey. If y'all, if this is a helpful illustration, I hope so, but if you've read recently C.S. Lewis's uh, Chronicles of Narnia, there's a really significant episode. If not, I would rather suggest, I would rather highly suggest it. Go back and read The Silver Chair because in that, there's a really good setup. Some of your, your kids are like, yeah, that was a great story. Go back and read it with them because Jill and Eustace are called to go from the comfort to someplace they don't understand and it's not uh, an experience for them yet. They've never been. Eustace has gone, but he hasn't gone to this part of Narnia. And what they are told, this objective truth that they have to trust and really, really remember so that when they get to the moment of actually acting out, obeying what Aslan has required of them, you remember what he tells them? He says, remember the signs. Remember, 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 he's telling them, remember, stick it in your brain so well that your any other thing is coming up and you can see it clearly. When there's fog, when there's whatever happening, remember the signs so that when you're there and you're doubting and stuff is happening, you're unsure that you'll have this objective truth that you know then you can trust because it's firmly implanted. If that helps, 
If not, go back and read it, and hopefully that'll help then. But I think this is, this is the point that, that Abraham is getting. He's hearing this truth from God. He's remembering it probably every step away from his hometown, away from his father, away from what was comfortable for him. And God calls him by faith to follow, repenting from those, those idols and turning and trusting the one true God. It's incredible in this story, going back to Hebrews, the way that Genesis is explained and Hebrews recaps. He simply, the author of Hebrews here simply says, when he was called, the second phrase in verse 8, he went out not knowing where he was going. He was called to a place and he went out because Abraham's eyes were open to see God and to see that he was called to a place into a specific land. Eventually, he gets there and the Lord shows him this place. And he worships God. He sets up an altar and he worships the one true God because he has seen what he could only know by faith all along. And what's beautiful, just to set this up for a couple chapters later, he lives in that place, never establishing roots. You know how hard it is to completely move towns away from family and to be there kind of temporarily? It's hard. It's emotionally draining. You want to establish roots. You want to have your own place. You want to start to get your neighbors, get to know them, and, and find other connections, which is right and good and healthy. But here it says the reason why Abraham didn't do that is because he was looking forward to a city. City's not just comfortable because it has big walls that protect us. A city is good because it has foundation that anchors us. And we'll see that in a little bit, but just tuck that away for a moment. If we can also see this in Acts chapter 7, uh, Stephen, one of the first deacons, um, mentions this in his really, really helpful but long sermon on the the history of the story of uh, God's people. I just want to bring out this one phrase. He says to the, the audience, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. Why is that a really significant detail? Glory captivates us like nothing else. Why is that? Because our hearts, spiritually speaking, are built for glory. We're not built for all of this other stuff. We're we're supposed to be enamored and captivated and longing for that. So that that is what will feed our faith, grow our trust, and actually motivate us, drive us to go wherever God leads so that we can actually turn from those things in the past, turn from idols, turn from what might be comfortable, and turn towards serving the one true God, which is turning to life. Now, if we look around us today, I don't think there are many of us who have literally heard God's uh, vocal call. We haven't heard God's voice that way. Uh, But we still, even more surely, Peter says in his letters, we have something more certain, which is his 
written word that the Holy Spirit confirms in us, that objective truth that comes into our hearts that we can know by faith is true and real, and then from there, get to obey and live that out. I think this is exactly what we are seeing when Jesus gently, graciously corrects Thomas in that scene that we called him doubting Thomas for. Remember, he says, Thomas is like hard pressed to believe that Jesus in front of him, the real resurrected Lord, is actually there. So Jesus says, no, no, Thomas, take your hand. Put it here in the wound. It's healed. Look. Look at my hands. These, These are nail holes. And he says to Thomas, blessed are you because you have seen and believe. You've known the truth and you've trusted it because you can subjectively see it. But you remember Jesus' encouragement that I think for all of us also stands? But blessed are those who have not seen and yet still believe. That's what Abraham's doing. He has not seen yet. He's traveling thousands of miles. You kids can probably Google it on your maps later and see how far exactly it is. From, those, from Ur and Haran all the way over to the land of Canaan. He's traveling all this way by foot. Blessed because he is going and yet to see. This is exactly how the Bible describes faith from these different angles. Oftentimes it is very much the, the content of our faith, what our faith can anchor itself in, which is the truth, the objective truth, once for all delivered by God to us, his saints. I think this is exactly what Paul's getting at in 1 Corinthians 15, right? He says, For I delivered of first importance what I received, that Christ actually died, that he rose from the dead. This is objective truth that you need to know in order for your faith to be anchored. But we also see faith referred to as as what we can believe, what we can hear in our hearts and trust. I think this is what Jesus is getting at in John 14 when he's saying, Believe me or believe for the works themselves. Believe what you can subjectively see. It's it's clear and evident in the world around us. Both of those things go hand in hand. Sometimes we might see the the life of someone who has turned completely around. And you ask them, what what was it? God just was at work. And praise the Lord. That's not a, a problem. That's sometimes how God gets us. He grips our hearts. He launches us into obedience. And then we get to know more of what is anchoring that. But we also see that we are called to live and act in faith. I think this is what Paul's getting at in Romans 10.9 when he says, confess with your mouth and believe with your hearts. There's absolutely some content that we must confess. It's right. We can't just make up stuff on the spot. Uh, I think this is right and true and good about, you know, some guy named Jesus. Sure, we'll go with that. No, but when we confess it, what's true that God has revealed to us, and when we believe it, we're actually doing what is obedient. We're following him. We need all three of those aspects. We need the head to obey, or to, sorry, to know. We need a heart to trust, and we need the hands to obey. This is what we're going to see as well. When faith 
leads Abraham, if we can call those other episodes what they are, to disobedience. I think it's still faith. He's still trying to live into God's promises. We're going to see later on when he uh, goes to Egypt because there's a famine in Canaan. He goes to Egypt and he lies about his sister being Sarah. Saying, no, 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 she's only my sister. I think the first step, he knows that the promise is going to happen. He, he wants to trust in that, but what he does is clearly disobeying God in those instances. It's faith to the, wrong, to the right idea in the wrong direction. And then especially we're going to see, and I think the rest of this section brings home what is really valuable about Sarah's role of faith in the episode with Hagar. In other words, if the promise is not only to have land, but to have an offspring who is going to inherit this land, we better make that happen. Because he's 75 when he's first given this promise that he's going to have as many descendants as there are stars in the sky. 13 years later, nothing. It's a long time to wait. And so when Sarah says, I, I can't do it for you, I can't be what gives you this offspring. Let's trust that God might use a different way. So here's Hagar. Clearly that's wrong. God does not bless that. He does not say, oh yeah, okay, you figured out a different way to do it than I had in mind, so let's go with that. No, he says that's wrong. He's not the child that's going to receive the promised land. But he also doesn't discount Hagar and Ishmael. In other words, we can take the, the specific episodes, not gloss over and ignore some of the wrong disobedience, but see what the author of Hebrews here is saying in big strokes, and I think we're going to see that specifically in a second, Abraham and Sarah and then Isaac and Jacob are knowing, trusting, and obeying by faith. That's where they're going. So we're looking at Abe's whole story, in other words, not as a, a photo album with a couple of vacation highlights, right? Look at this. This was fun. Yay, the palm trees. We're looking at it as a whole story, the whole video of his life of faith. So first, if he's called to obey and he went, secondly, he's called to live by faith. And that's what we see in verse 9 and 10. He went out not knowing where he was going. In verse 9, he says, By faith he went to live in the land of promise. How would it look to live in a land of promise? We might expect, he gets there, and he's given all these wonderful things, lots of good stuff and comfort and ease and a life of blessing. But the author of Hebrews says he's living there as in a foreign land. That's not his home. What specifically does that mean? He lives in tents. He's a wanderer. He's an alien in an exile. We might use the word today refugee. It's not his homeland. He doesn't settle. He comes back often to similar places and he's, he's enjoying the promises that he's getting to see tangibly of, of those promises of God. But it also says, by faith he has heirs with Isaac and Jacob of the same promise. He lives into that reality that God is going to give him this land. Even when his natural eyes, 
think this is impossible. I don't even have a son, much less as many children as there are stars in the sky. So he's there as, as in a foreign land. And I think what this is helping us see is, is what Michael Kruger points out in his commentary that God's promise regarding Abraham's offspring is like the promise he made about the land. He, it's not yet there. It's real and true, but it ain't shown up yet because it points forward to something greater. Greater offspring. A greater city and ultimately, a greater Savior. So for us, what does this mean? It means that living by faith daily, trusting God each and every moment, means we get to live in the here and now. We obviously need to go about our tangible daily lives. But we need to make sure they're anchored, both in what we know and what we trust, and what God says is true. And our confidence can be there. Or as Augustine puts it in this, is his commentary on this passage, that faith is the beginning which contains the certainty of the end. By faith, we begin what we ultimately conclude by possessing and seeing. He was looking forward to this. He didn't live in the land of promise as if it was now his home, not his, his established city, but he was looking forward to the city. This is a beautiful vision that this author gives us. The the city that has foundations, by the way, that foundations words, it's the same idea as what faith is. Faith is is the assurance, the substance, the foundations of things that we don't see yet. He's living in this foreign land, in a tent, but he's looking forward to a city that has foundations. Who's building this city? It's designed and built by God. It's going to be both the place that is his established home and the place that is there that's going to last long enough for all these generations, as many generations as there are stars in the heavens and sand on the seashore, as many of those to inherit this city. By the way, it's referenced, the city is referenced in Revelation 21.14. For those of you that studied Revelations recently, the city whose foundations designer and builder is God. The foundation is upon the apostles. And it's no mistake, this isn't just cool number tricks, it's no mistake that there are 12 apostles just like there were 12 sons of Israel. So that this foundation, the foundation of the city whose Abraham's looking forward to in multiple generations beyond him is the same foundation that we also look forward to that weaves together how we live in this area, in this foreign land. This is not our home. We've heard that in different directions from different angles and different passages. This is another place that that point is reiterated. So what do we do with this? Sometimes we read these stories and think, yeah, it'd be really, it would be a lot easier to live back then. Life was simpler you only had a couple things to worry about. You didn't have all these other details. Your schedules were clear. You didn't have stuff crowding your calendar. But listen again. Abraham was named literally the father of many. He had no child. He was called to obey and leave his homeland, leave his father's side, leave his relatives, his kinsmen, 
and go to a, father, a foreign place. And it's not like he, leave, he left some idols behind and then had no problems with idolatry ever again. The land of Canaan was full of them. Constantly horrible practices with idol worship was saturating that land. And Abraham couldn't just show up going, I know the truth now. There's one true God. Let's go with him. Because they would have thought he's ridiculous. But he lives that way. He's faithful that way. And he follows the one true God the whole time. And then the fact that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, three solid generations, live in tents. It's even a little emphasized back in, in Genesis that it's ironic that they're living in tents because Abraham and his, his nephew Lot, there's not enough land to go around for all the herds that they have. They have to look at things and decide that you go that way and I'll go this way. They can't establish cities. They can't get rooted because they were looking forward to that city that has eternal foundations. How does this connect to us today in the 21st century in Hickson? Because Hebrews has to connect to Hickson. We have to see that there's clear, specific things to grow our faith, to nurture our faith, and to help us obey in that direction. What the author of Hebrews is trying to get at by this whole chapter is not to blindly trust. It's not just to plow ahead because if you hope enough, things will turn out okay. He's not saying that. He's getting the specific issue, uh, which I think we've heard before, is the, the, the wrestling of this Hebrew audience, that their tangible expressions of faith, the stuff that they could grab onto with their bare hands, the temple, the sacrifice, the priest, the feast days, all of those things were seeming to be eroded by what Hebrews 10.32 calls the real persecution, the plundering of their property when they're their own members, their own household are all getting imprisoned. They're being ostracized by society. And they're going, if this is what's going to happen because of faith, maybe faith isn't it. I think that's where the connection to us comes. In other words, if we don't have our faith anchored to something objective that is rooted in a deep and rich knowledge of God through his word. The winds of culture, as they blow and we struggle and we see it's challenging here, it's not as, uh, as much a life of comfort and ease as we might have anticipated. Oftentimes, we don't doubt ourselves, we doubt something else. If this is how hard marriage is going to be, it might not be that something else is wrong. It must be God. If this is how hard parenting, if this is how hard college is, if this is how hard it's going to be in a workplace to stand on what is true, we don't often go back and search it deeper and try to reinform our minds so that our hearts can trust more. We've heard this all over the place with there's, there's more doubt and de-churching and deconstructing of our faith. I think that's exactly what the author of Hebrews is challenging his believers to hear. Don't deconstruct. Lean into, search the scriptures more. 
find those faithful around us. Say, how is it that you obey when things seem backwards and bonkers and challenging? Lean into that. See that God is actually the foundation of who he said he is. That we can actually trust. That doesn't mean ignore some of the helpful questions that doubt might bring. That means we can actually take them to the only one who can handle those questions. Take them to God in his word. In other words, as a faithful fellow servant described, faith in our day is always meeting a mountain. Watchman Nee described this. He's a faithful Christian that came up against hard thing after hard thing in life. He says, our faith is always going to meet some kind of mountain. What do we do when when we're brought up against some obstacle in our life? Do we try to ignore it? Climb it on our own strength and grit? Or do we go to Jesus' words about what to do with Mountains. This is the beauty of why I think Jesus says that it's the faith of a mustard seed. Because he's saying sometimes our hearts feel small and our trust feels tiny. But that's not what moves mountains. The God in whom our faith is put, he moves mountains all the time. Look at the canyon that he's carved into the gulch and the gully. He's constantly at work rearranging his mountains. Psalm 121 reminds us that I I lift my eyes to the hills, the mountains, but I don't lift them there because that's where my help comes from. I lift my eyes to the mountains to remind me that my help comes from the maker of those mountains. He's not stopped moving mountains. He has not stopped moving mountains in Hickson. He is still at work. That's where it comes into connection today. If I can just humbly suggest that I think this is, gives us two reasons why God actually uses future promises for his people rather than the kind of uh, rub the genie and poof stuff appears mentality that we might have. He uses promises, one, to lift our eyes to the realm, off the realm of our lowly circumstances. He puts us in places where we need to look forward to a city rather than thinking that this is our end-all and be-all here and now to keep us from filling ourselves on lesser things rather than on his full and captivating glory. The second reason, I think he actually wants our feet prepared for the journey. He wants us to be ready and nimble to go when he calls so that it can be said of us, and he went. Serving him keeping our mind focused on heavenly things, our heart eager for eternity. And this is why the last point, that our faith needs to be in him who has promised, not in what the results or the fruit of those promises are. This is where in verse 11 and 12 we turn to Sarah. Literally her name, just like Abraham's name means father of many, Sarah's name means princess. And ironically, she is prince-less. We don't want to dance around or skirt around the fact that she's described as barren. She is 
unable to have children. And I don't want to bring this topic up, not also mentioning that I know in a congregation like this, not just statistically speaking, statistically speaking, forgive me, but because I know some of y'all's lives, it's, this is a, infertility is something that we still wrestle with. And please don't hear me that we're just going to gloss over the hard challenge of that and get into the easy response or the easy result. Sarah lives with that for more than 13 years. If you go through that many years of life in a culture where your value as a wife is almost solely wrapped up in the offspring you can provide, and she doesn't have that, we can start to have compassion for the story behind Sarah's life. And we can even read these words from Genesis 16 when, it, when the, Moses describes Sarah and Abraham in the situation with Hagar. And, and this is what he says. Moses writes, So Sarai, Abraham's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, and gave her to Abram. Sarah might have thought that she was actually doing God's promise a favor. Here, I'll figure out a way to make it happen, Lord. I'll try to live faithfully and Here's the option we have. I must not be able to have a child. Let's go with option plan B. I bring that out because I think what the author of Hebrews is trying to reinforce that this faith isn't a snapshot that Sarah had. And so if we take the snapshot, this episode with Hagar, she failed. But it isn't a snapshot. It's the whole story. And so I think when Hebrews writes, by faith, Sarah herself received the power to conceive. I think what he is saying is that rather than Sarah giving what she thought was the power to fix this, to make this promise happen, rather than she giving Hagar to Abram, Hebrews is saying she received this power. It just took a whole lot longer than she thought. She just needed to learn faith and a little bit of patience. But so did Abraham. Here's where we get these details. Back in the story, both of them are, are, are doubting God's provision. Both of them are doubting how God's promise is going to actually happen. One commentator says, the problem with Sarai's suggestion that Abraham take Hagar was that it tried to achieve God's promise by man's power. Doubting God's power for what seemed impossible And we often do the same thing. We manipulate what is possible by our own devices. Wow, that promise looks impossible. What the promise to obey, to trust and obey, to repent when I'm at fault? Wow, that looks impossible. How am I going to do that? Well, I'll manipulate. I'll change some of the details so I don't look as bad. We do this all over the place. But here the author of Hebrews is saying, no, no, no. It wasn't that she tried to fix it herself. She did that and it was wrong, but eventually she learned what was right and faith then drove her. She believed her body was too old and and maybe rightfully so. She's 90 years old. We don't see that happening a lot. We don't even see that happening a lot in Scripture. So she takes the responsibility into her own hands. She thinks, okay, I've got a plan. If I can't have kids, Hagar, you do it. For faith... 
for her is so subjective. It's got to be something that she experiences. If she can't experience, she'll work it out a different route. If God says this, it will happen. It must happen. I don't know how, but we'll make it happen. And then God says in Genesis 17, he says, no, 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 Sarah. No, 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 Abraham. Your own body, Sarah, will produce a son. You remember what her response is? I don't know if she looked down. Is it th- th- this? She laughs. And I think it's the kind of laugh that we would expect. <laughs> like the what? It, it, what? Just for the record, back in Genesis 17, 17, Abraham laughed first. He was the first to laugh. And I don't think he's laughing at Sarah. I think he's saying, 90? 99? It ain't happening. But here's why I think this is such an important detail that the author of Hebrews gives us. That she received the power to conceive. Because first her laughter might be complete. That's ridiculous, God. That's a ludicrous plan for a 90-year-old to have a baby. But her laughter changes. And by Genesis 21, the author is emphasizing God's faithfulness there. And I think it's even emphasized by the fact that from the time he says, a year later, you're going to have a son. It takes a whole year for her to go, well, last time you gave me that promise, I tried it the wrong way. But a year is going on here. I want to see you at work, God. So that... Genesis 21 explains that the name Isaac actually means laughter. The son is named laughter. I don't think if that meant a a laughing, mocking God, that they would name the son laughter. I think it means a laughter that comes as a redeemed laughter, as looking at God's promises that actually came true in God's way. That God has made laughter for me, Sarah said. In other words, Hebrews here is is highlighting this beautiful truth that there's a natural shift in the spiritual life of faith. The difference between laughing at what is impossible with man, 90-year-old, 99-year-old, that's impossible with man, and laughing at what is only possible with God. God can make this happen. Look how many times in Scripture we see the barren woman, or the infertile couple. God brings life. I think this is exactly what Romans 4.19 is bringing to us. He's bringing this full circle in this beautiful passage in Romans. He's talking about Abraham and the life of faith that is woven through there. In 19 to 22, Paul says, He, Abraham, did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which here is the phrase that Hebrews uses as well, which is good as dead, 99 years old, things don't function like they used to. He considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, I think that has to be received with some compassion and and lamenting. That's, That's not how our bodies are meant to function. We're supposed to bear life. But it says in verse 20, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith. 
the encourage from us today, brothers and sisters, is that it took him time. God is patient with our growth in faith. God is patient with us learning what that means to trust and actually obey. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Verse 21, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. God's promise in God's way for God's glory. That's what he's showing us. And that's why he goes on to say that his faith was counted to him as righteousness because he actually trusted. He didn't just take things into his own hands. One commentator says that believing God, this is a beautiful final picture, I think, of this whole scope. That believing God, they actually came together as husband and wife. And by the power of his grace, God brought life from a dead womb bringing a salvation that is all of grace. Just to recap this whole story, this is a beautiful entire story. It shows a dead man being followed, called out of a dead culture to follow a living God, to have a family with an actual heir, to have uh, the firstborn of many offspring, to live by faith in a God he could actually know and trust, to know him, to love him, to trust him, to live for him, to obey him, all the while eager for a city that actually had foundations. As we wrap up this morning, I think this is what is beautiful in this scene where we're moving towards Advent and towards Christmas. And in Mary's song of rejoicing, the very end of her song, it is incredible because in a sense, on a, in a long line of barren wives, she's not supposed to have children. Yeah, it's a little bit different. I get that. But this is what she praises. This is how she praises God in that moment. She says, blessed for is God because he's helped his servant Israel, right? The Isaiah, sorry, Isaac and Jacob. Jacob is Israel. God has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy that he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. Mary sees the blessing of baby Jesus in her womb that could only come in God's way as the fruit of the promise to Abraham. That's exactly what Hebrews is trying to point us forward to. That our faith isn't just something that we need to hold on to subjectively. It just isn't something we get to experience. This faith is all the while, consistently through this book of Hebrews, all the way up to this chapter 11. Our faith is anchored in who Christ is, what he has lived and died and rose from the dead to achieve for you and I. So that Paul can say in Romans 8, You think this is the fullness of the promise yet? Paul says in verse 32, God who did not spare his own son, but who gave us, he gave him up for us. He gave Jesus up for us. How will he not with him give us all things? He's saying you think you're experiencing the fullness of these promises now? You haven't tasted and seen anything 
You think that you have to trust and just blindly obey, plowing forward? No, anchor your faith in who God is in the person and work of Jesus because it's so much better. And all these details will come as the culmination of Christ and his work for you. All of these things, I hope, show us that from one man, him as good as dead, were born descendants, not just physical offspring, but descendants by faith. You and I are in this story. You and I are the heirs of this promise that we will inherit a land because of a son. And it's not dirt. It's an eternal heavenly city that that there's no rust and moth that can tear away and destroy. It's worth knowing God, trusting him, and obeying him for the whole rest of your life. Please pray with me. God, by faith, you call us here. And by faith, we have to trust, we get to trust that you are good and your promises will be true even when we don't see how. So I pray as we finish up worshiping this morning with this beautiful song, and as we go from this place, you will continue to anchor our belief, anchor what we know, anchor how we trust and anchor the ways that we try to obey in Christ and Christ alone. Pray for this, for our people here in Christ, for his glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.